Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Risk and Regulation Rundown podcast, our monthly podcast where we discuss the latest risk and regulatory developments affecting our industry, some insights from our work with clients and our perspective on industry talking points. I'm Sarah Eisted, your regular host, and this month I'm delighted to be joined by John Williams and Stella Nunn to talk about two of the most significant issues in financial services regulation at the moment, climate risk and operational resilience. So Stella, starting with you and starting with operational resilience, um, you're a PwC director who works with many of our clients um, on this topic, and it's been a priority for financial services regulators for some time. So can you give us an overview of what they've been up to? Sure. Uh, thanks, Sarah. You're right. It has been around uh, for some while. And in fact, uh, in the summer of 2018, it was the first time the regulators had actually ever written down uh, their expectations around operational resilience. Uh, and unless you had been unfortunate enough to have an incident and, and have the pleasure of the uh, regulator coming to speak to you, uh, you may not have understood quite what they were expecting. Uh, and not only that, those failures that have happened across the industry, the regulator feels that firms generally haven't learned the lessons either of their own incidents or, or those of others. Uh, and that has resulted in this sort of crescendo of the regulatory focus uh, that started last summer uh, and continues on now uh, where we are in terms of waiting for the consultation paper, which we hope will be delivered by the end of 2019. Um, what was unusual about that discussion paper, actually, was the fact that it was uh, all three regulators coming together uh, and is issuing that, which is, is relatively unusual. And it set out the framework for firms in terms of how they should look at resilience of their operations. Uh, and one of the key parts of that was the introduction of the concept of business services and important business services. Uh, and that key change is trying to move firms away from looking at themselves in their traditional silos in terms of their functions and disciplines uh, and looking end-to-end -end from a customer perspective of how those services are actually delivered to either their customers' clients or the market. And that is one of the reasons why it has become such a hot topic and a key topic in the boardroom uh, of, of firms. One of the major pieces that's happened since that discussion paper was issued was uh, through the summer of 2019, where the Bank of England has been running a pilot of their stress testing approach. Uh, and that used um, the scenario of a cyber-triggered payments issue. Uh, and that was to look both at the impact and response of individual firms, as well as considering the macro impacts of, across the sector. Uh, and the findings from that stress test will hopefully be published uh, shortly uh, between now and the end of 2019. Uh, and then the bank has uh, put the firms on notice that that testing will become a regular activity. Uh, and we expect to see that followed through in 2020. Okay. So lots of regulatory activity. I know the government's also been really interested in this. So we've had a Treasury Select Committee inquiry into IT failures in the financial services industry. And in late October, they published their findings. That's right. So what did they say? So in fact, they've gone to reinforce most of what's in the discussion paper uh, and also provided recommendations to regulators and to firms. And what they've done is actually pick up quite a lot of the recommendations of the PwC and City UK report, uh, Time to Act, which was published in the summer of 2019 in June. Uh, and what that has really done in that reinforcement is told everyone that they're going to look under the bonnet uh, of, of what's happening. They are concerned about those technology failures. And as we become more and more digital and services in banks and insurers uh, start to uh, transform, that incidents in technology particularly will have a far greater impact than they have done to date. It also looks at things like the changing business models um, of firms uh, and also they've picked up on the 
tolerance levels uh, and the use of the senior manager regime um, for repercussions uh, and have urged regulators to use that more than they have done so far. Um, Brilliant. We'll come back to impact tolerances because I know that's a key area that firms are looking at. One of the other areas that I know the government were interested in, uh, but also is proving challenging for firms is around outsourcing. Um, And I think for a number of um, organisations, partly because of the growth of outsourcing and perhaps reliance, increasing reliance on service um, providers for the cloud, for example, this is a very complex area for firms. So how are firms dealing with outsourcing in the context of operational resilience? It's one of the uh, black holes, if you like, for operational resilience. It's the one that really trips people up. Um, We found that firms find it extremely difficult even to get a list of all their suppliers and outsourcers, particularly in some of the large, complex global firms. Uh, To then distill that into which is critical for delivery of a business service is particularly difficult. And then when you look at the outsourcing models uh, that are now in place, and and you're right, the extent of outsourcing, um, that people don't necessarily understand the supply chain risk. And we see quite a few incidents where actually the incident is caused by a fourth or fifth party who is unknown to the end supplier, uh, end user of that supply, uh, that they were even in that supply chain. So what we've done is suggest through the City UK report and and picked up by the Treasury Select Committee is that firms should really think about how they engage with their suppliers, not just look at service level agreements, but set objectives for delivery and and really start to change the dial on how they engage uh, with suppliers. And then the outsourcing to cloud is is one of the biggest topics. Cloud providers have become systemic to the financial sector uh, and there will be uh, more guidance from European regulators around outsourcing. But this is the uh, Treasury Select Committee also picked up on the fact that um, they are encouraging the UK regulators to look at how they may bring some of those key cloud supplies into regulation, which would be a big step. It would be a big step and, and certainly one um, that I know from talking to a range of clients, they're very interested in and watching, uh, watching eagerly. Are, yes. um, so I said I'd come back to impact tolerances. This is the topic um, that a lot of my clients want to, to talk to us about. So can you explain what we mean by impact tolerances and what people are doing about it? Yeah, sure. Uh, everyone wants to talk about impact tolerance, uh, in fact. Uh, and actually, we find that some clients want to jump to impact tolerance and jump to the answer without necessarily going through some of the steps they need to do to get there. So we encourage firms to think about uh, what they need to do to get to a point where they can set impact tolerance. Um, and impact tolerance is a new concept that, again, has come through the discussion paper. And it is very much around being able to define uh, what they consider to be intolerable levels of disruption to their most important business services. Um, So while it's founded in risk management, it assumes failure. So it is somewhat different. Um, And we are talking about the impacts of disruption on customers or financial stability or a firm's own viability. And I know this can sound like a really complex topic for people, but I know you've got a very straightforward analogy uh, that works really well to explain it. So do you want to talk us through that? I can, yes. It, and, and it is my view that to keep it simple. And, and, and I enjoy the debates where we, we bounce ideas around of how scientific or mathematic might it be, um, but bring it back to the principle of what it's for, which is to understand and be able to set resilience and, and understand that disruption. So what works really well is to, to put an analogy in um, which is actually about uh, being punched in the face. Okay. So, um, which always gets a smile and gets attention, but it does seem to work. So bear with me. Um, so 
I have a risk appetite of zero to be punched in the face. I have no appetite whatsoever. Um, but if you were to punch me in the face once, I would start to rock and sway. Um, but I would still be there. I would still be operational, uh, just not quite as effective as I was before. And then he punched me for a second time. Uh, and I am now really rocking on my heels and I'm just about hanging on. So I'm operating, but I'm at my last point. And then he punched me a third time. And that's it. Spark cold out. So my impact tolerance is two punches because once you hit me a third time, I'm in breach of that tolerance. Whilst all that's been going on, my risk appetite has not changed whatsoever. I have no appetite to be punched in the face still, but I could withstand two punches. And you can play that through quite neatly, um, even though it is oversimplified. But if you want to overlay onto that the severe but plausible type scenarios that the uh, regulator talks about, which is who's punching you? Is it a heavyweight boxer or is it a small child? How frequent are those punches? Do you have time to recover between them? And what other mitigating actions might there be? You know, is there medical attention on hand? Um, and have you been training uh, for, for that punch? So there are many factors and it just seems to work really well. It helps to distinguish between risk appetite and impact tolerance. Brilliant. Thank you, Stella. I know from talking to clients where we've talked to them um, together that that analogy really resonates. So, so thank you for sharing that. Um, so another area of hot topic, another hot topic for our regulators is climate change. Um, so I'm joined now by John Williams, who's a partner in our sustainability and climate change team at PwC and leads on climate risk. And John, you also sit on the uh, task force on climate related financial disclosures. So a perfect person to talk to us about this. So could you tell us what the regulators are currently focusing on and how that is impacting on the financial services sector. Yeah, well, great. Thanks, Sarah, and uh, great to be here. Um, I'm not sure I have an analogy on climate change, <laughs> but I may get there by the end of the podcast. You never know. I'll help you, um, John, if we can. <laughs> I like analogies. Great. I'm, I'm going to look towards you. <laughs> so, I mean, the story starts back in 2015 in Paris on the sidelines of the signing of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. And Mark Carney, as chair of the Financial Stability Board, had formed a view based on research that climate change was a financial issue and potentially systemically important. He formed uh, the Task Force on Climate-Related financial disclosures of which, as you said, I'm a member and asked Michael Bloomberg to chair it. And that set off 18 months of work to design a framework of recommendations using market experts under the oversight of the FSB. So that was where we started. The TCFD recommendations have been picked up by regulators around the world, um, most particularly here in the UK, where the Prudential Regulation Authority uh, has started putting in place um, a framework involving um, uh, appointing a senior manager under the senior manager regime, involving having an implementation plan, uh, involving having the right governance structure and building the right capabilities. Um, further afield in Europe, the Sustainable Finance Action Plan is taking a similar approach, um, looking at the, sort of the right green taxonomy, thinking about whether capital allocation needs to be changed in light of different risk weightings, for example. And then beyond that, you have um, at a global level, the Network for Greening the Financial System, uh, 43 central banks that are following following a similar path. So from that seed planted in 2015, we now have what is emerging as a globally broadly standard set of regulations that firms now need to respond to. Brilliant. Thank you, John. Um, so one of the ways that climate change could potentially impact firms is through disruption. 
Um, and so that could be through physical risks um, coming from extreme weather, or it could be through transition risks, through changes in policy, technology, markets, etc. So how do you find that firms are managing those risks? And Stella, if I could bring you back in, how should they incorporate um, this issue within their broader operational resilience work? Yeah. So the understanding of climate risk and how it relates to financial services is again quite new. Um, very often a client will say, well, climate change isn't going to happen until 2050. It's not on my watch. Actually, it's the very policies, um, for example, setting the right carbon price um, or uh, increasing renewable energy in the economy as, as two examples that drive much shorter term risks that are not so well understood. And they're called the sort of the transition risks. Um, and those risks are likely to emerge in developed economies in high carbon sectors. And therefore, if you're exposed to those as an investor, as a lender, as an insurance underwriter, then you are likely to um, you know, possibly be impacted. The temptation is to jump straight to the number. I want to say, what is the value at risk from that climate scenario? Actually, you've got to start with governance. You've got to have people on your board who have got some capability and competence. You've got to have somebody within your um, risk management framework, a senior manager function responsible. You've got to have competent teams in the three lines of defence uh, to deliver that. Only then can you begin to think about the right risk management framework, decide what scenarios matter to you, and then you might get to a number or more likely a series of numbers that help describe the impact of climate change on your balance sheet and on your earnings. Great. And Stella, how do, how do you think this links to the operational resilience work? I think there are actually several links. One of them around that stress testing piece and the use of scenarios, which is an overlap and potentially reuse some of those scenarios around climate change, as well as actually the change in business models and operations that may occur due to climate change and decisions made about risk, where actually uh, you have to think about the delivery of your services and building resilience by design. And on a practical level, which is who delivers your services and where are they based? Uh, and do you, will those operational models have to change in the future um, as, you know, the climate change and, and rising waters and floods, etc., may force different decisions around your operations? Brilliant. Thank you. Um, so, John, when we look across the financial services sector, um, it's clear that the Prudential Regulation Authority is clearly initially focusing on banks and insurers. So what are the main issues that those firms need to be considering at the moment? Well, you'll be glad to know, Sarah, that I've now found my analogy. Excellent. And the challenge is a bit like my DIY and why, therefore, somebody does my house decorating for me. I've got a toolbox. I have some of the tools, but I don't know how to use them. And that's much the same with um, sort of climate risk. Um, the regulators are trying to set a framework, and the PRA have been very clear, around governance, around scenarios and stress testing, around data, around disclosure. Um, but many of the tools don't exist. There are no market standard scenarios. Um, many firms don't have access to the right climate models, a little bit like my lack of a spirit level, perhaps. Um, and also, they don't have um, you know, the data at an asset level on uh, the risks they're taking. Their systems need to be upgraded. Um, I need a bigger toolbox to fit the right tools in. Um, but most importantly, um, the people need to be trained. They need to pick up the DIY manual and they need to read it. And they need to understand what it is that they can do. Brilliant. I love the analogy. Um, and then on asset management, what's going on there? I know there's work going on on environmental, social and governance factors known as ESG. Um, 
So I think that brings lots of opportunities for firms, but presumably some risks as well. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, both risks and opportunities. You know, on the risk side, um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, the uh, action of regulators, so for example, the EU Sustainable Finance Action Plan, you know, will define a green taxonomy um, and will begin to include ESG factors into MIFID II, for example. Um, And what that means is that if you are an asset manager, firstly, you need to make sure the product you're selling meets the definitions of green as laid down by the Sustainable Finance Action Plan. But also you need to understand the ESG preferences of your clients and make sure the investments that you recommend to them meet those requirements. So you're beginning to now see it through a conduct lens. Um, You know, as well as regulation, the other big driver, in my view, of ESG investing is the changing attitudes of investors, particularly millennials. You have this huge intergenerational transfer of wealth over the next two decades, and everything I read says we want ESG embedded into our investments. The last 24 months, the level of ESG assets has quadrupled globally, which is, is quite stunning. Um, And I think the opportunities, therefore, for asset managers are huge if they embrace um, this sort of wave of ESG. Um, And one data point just to leave you with, if you look at the investment required globally to turn our energy systems alone into clean energy, it's $90 trillion by 2030. Goodness me. If I had a balance sheet, if I was an asset manager, if I was an insurer, I'd be saying, show me where the opportunities are. Absolutely. So huge opportunities um, there for firms. Um, So thank you very much to John and to Stella. We could carry on talking about both of these topics and many analogies uh, for some time. uh, But that's all for this month. Um, So please don't forget to subscribe to and to rate and review our podcast. And we'll be back next month to share some more insights with you. Thank you very much for listening.